my fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wallet. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at River.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Yo, yo. Awesome to have you, Preston. It's, it's been a while. We, we, we caught up briefly today, but before that, you know, two minute phone call, it's been, it's been a few months since we, we checked in. It, it, you know, seems like the worst or not the worst, but uh, you know, Bitcoins bounced decently off the lows. And here we are at the start of 2023, where I think a lot of us Bitcoiners kind of maybe fiat, fiat bears long-term, you know, regarding this massive debt super cycle would have said, you know, rates get to 5%, 4% in 2022, like it's going to get ugly fast. And the thing that surprised me increasingly, but I guess less so over the last couple of weeks is that the, the you know, global economy is still running pretty hot. Inflation doesn't look like it's just going to magically go back to 2%. So like a lot of the, the, you know, the economists have been saying for a few years and, and we, now we see, you know, late 23, 24 rate cuts are now being priced back out. Right. So the, those, those interest rates are going up. How do you think about all of this stuff in like the broader macro economy and this credit cycle? And then maybe if you want to like touch on, on the Bitcoin native stuff, we can go there too. Yeah, I love it. You know, I, I've been really struggling the last couple months just trying to know whether they're going to be able to, to get real disinflation, meaningful, I think the better word is meaningful disinflation to kind of normalize. I, I don't even know if normalize is right but to like somewhat get things under control with the inflation prints and th this move that we've seen in credit markets just in the past, since the start of February, sure. If you were a momentum person looking at treasuries, you, you would have probably said, yeah, maybe they're starting to get this under control. And then since the start of February, it seems like it's just ripping once again. And I can't get the treasury, the U.S. treasury bond yield curve, like out of my head. I just keep looking at this chart and I'm just like, it just takes your breath away when you look at the, the sheer size of this sell-off. And 
you had that, that little bit of volatility that kind of started in November, like they were going to get things under control. And then here in February, it's just selling off again. And I'm just, I'm just like, I don't know, like, I honestly, I just don't know what the hell they're going to do at this point. Like it is looking nasty. And then when you look at the bond yield curves over in Europe and, and elsewhere, like they're just as nasty. And so I would, I think in the last, in the last month to two months, it almost seems like even the, the normie, like traditional, like financial media publications are starting to say a lot of the stuff that all of us Bitcoiners have been screaming about, which is debt spiral. Now it's even making it into their lexicon on what they're talking about. And they're saying, hey, like if these rates keep going up, like we can't afford even the interest expense like this, this could be really bad. And, and so I think we're, we're at this really unique moment in time where it's not like people aren't supposed to panic yet. I think they're like, it's not time to panic, but, but boy, if it goes much further, if the sell off in the credit markets keep ripping the way that they are and ripping in yield terms, like the yields are blowing out, right? It's going to, it's going to get really uncomfortable really fast. So, you know, I'd, I'd say that's just kind of like the broad brush, like overview of like how I see this snapshot in time. I, I, I find it to be very confusing as to like what's actually going to play out here. And, and then I, I, if I was going to comment on, on risk on type assets as well. So like if treasuries keep selling off on like a global scale because supply chains and all this other stuff is just breaking. And by the way, that's only going to break it worse if, if we have rates keeps, you know, going higher because the bond markets are selling off, continue to sell off. That's only going to make business that much harder. And so, like, what does that mean for risk on assets? Well, all this all this buying power that's stuffed into fixed income, it's as, as it's selling out of that, like those those funds have to go somewhere. They need to go into something that has scarcity to it equities that can continue to make money despite this crazy environment, I would think are going to bid. Uh, like that money has to go into, into those types of things. And so this is where like PE ratios and like all these like normal metrics that we've talked about, you know, for a very long time and that, you know, you go to any business school, like that's what you're going to study and that's what you're going to look at. Like, that's how you conduct economic calculation. A lot of this stuff is just really going to, not really make a whole lot of sense to a lot of people because you're going to be paying like massive PEs. And the reason that capital is flowing into these things is because they're still profitable and they represent a form of scarcity because they're profitable. The ones that aren't profitable, they're, they're going to have to debase their, the number of shares outstanding. But for ones that can remain profitable in this crazy environment, like they're, they should get bid. Because like the only thing that you can really kind of that's liquid enough that you can shove all this buying power that's coming out of the fixed income space into. And then obviously you got Bitcoin, which is just a giant sponge ready to soak up all of it. So I'm I'm as curious and awestruck and confused <laughs> as as anybody else right now when I look at everything that's taking place. Yeah, it's, it's certainly an interesting kind of case study. You know, there's like I, I like to think of, you know, in terms of relative and absolute wealth destruction, we've never seen anything like it. We've never seen as big of a broad based financial asset bubble. And, and you know, we're one year into it and people are saying like, OK, well, maybe 
it's not even a, a soft or hard landing. It's just a no landing. And we keep this, keep this game going. And to me, I, I just kind of think of like the credit impulse, like these broad metrics, like global liquidity and, you know, the lag effects that, that these things take. And it's like, okay, even if 2023 isn't actually all that bad and, you know, the higher for longer mantra holds up for another 12 months, 18 months, you know, something like, Something like that after, I think it starts to get pretty ugly, especially, you know, around the globe that has a bunch of, you know, flow rate stuff, you know, they're all short dollars. Like that, that thesis still is kind of unchanged. The Dalio debt cycle framework is still applies. And I think it applies more than ever, just given where rates were and the bursting of this bubble. Like, so if, if long end rates continue to diverge from equities, that's not a sign of like equities being smart money. It's a sign of equity investors and just passively taking like kind of risks they don't really understand stuff like the equity risk premium you know and like and like the the short end rates as a percent of the S&P earnings yield and which to your point which is true like the earnings yields can be distorted in an, infl- an inflated environment where people just buy you know companies with a moat that can turn profits but a lot of the stuff that's getting bid right now is like you know the kind of the stuff that that was you know part of the frenzy in 2021 so i'm really interested to see if like you know, the Teslas of the world coin to a certain extent gets to some of those flows, but I think it's, it's fundamentally different than a lot of the, you know, the, the tech boom that happened that coincided with it. So I think that's what I'm really excited to pay attention to like for in, in 23 is like, do we get that because the yield curve is so inverted, what, What's the, what plays out? Do short end rates eventually go lower or do we get like a bearish steepener of sorts where that long end has to go to four and a half percent, which, you know, should in theory, in economic theory, if it still applies, reprice equities a lot, lot lower relatively. I think, Uh, I think the thing that's going to be hard is like everybody's accustomed to just buying an index, right? Like buying the S and P 500 and like in general, when you're dealing with somewhat stable currency and you're dealing with a stable credit market like you could just get away with that and and there really wasn't much of an issue but i think the challenge moving forward is is what businesses out there can weather interest rates this high and not just weather them this high but you know, they're coming off of the face within a year of, of basically not even have to, having to think about interest rates to now it being a driving factor to servicing whatever debt they took on. So when, when we look at like equity, it's a total re-engineering of like how they've got to think about being competitive in their particular niche markets and whatever competitive mode that they were able to achieve when credit was cheap. And it's just, it's totally different. It's, it's when, when you talk about trying to service 5% plus interest rate, when maybe your margin after tax was only 5%, like you now become a business that's not profitable, that has to rely on, on further issuance of, of stock to just stay alive. And so, and, and let's just compound that where, because you compress these rates for so long, and it, it just always went down. Everybody was in this train of thought that, well, interest rates just go lower over time. And you, you have a totally different setup here. And, 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 and the amount of, of competition that that ensued and the consolidation that happened over all those decades 
it's just creating a situation that I, I don't I don't think too many people it, it's gonna be interesting to see how how it's handled. So I think just buying an index is for as far as like risk on assets is going to be, you know, might not lead to the best results. Like you really need to do some deep analytical thinking on individual companies that have a really sizable moat and large margin and can withstand and whatever their product and service is, it's it's something that the market's going to continue to demand, even with extremely low disposable income across most market participants. And so whatever that is, I don't, and this is one of the reasons why it's been so easy for me to not really waste my time trying to dig into that setup because it's like, good luck finding that company, right? Like that's a whole lot of work to find companies that fit that bill when I can just go out there and literally buy Bitcoin and not really have to work nearly as hard. And, and I'm pretty sure the performance is not going to be anywhere close to what I can get with Bitcoin. So, you know, I, I, I bought an equity. I bought MicroStrategy. I can't remember when it was. It was like around a little bit before Christmas time frame when the price was, I, I think I paid like $200 a share or something for MicroStrategy. I think that's where I was at. But anyway, so I bought that because I was looking at it. I was like, all right, so this this person running the company, they obviously know how to denominate their free cash flows into Bitcoin. They are free cash flow positive. They totally get it. And so, you know, if the equity is priced what I think is appropriately, and the reason I didn't buy it three or four years ago is because I thought the the capitalization rate was like everything else on the planet that was way too high for what the free cash flows were, were being generated. But, you know, when there's, when there's times that the market offers you great prices, you got to take it. And I mean, it's not a real big position, but I actually own equity again. And it's not, <laughs> the position size is not large, but I bring it up because I think it's an important thing for people to, to think about once companies do start waking up and they do start denominating their free cash flows and what they're retaining on their balance sheet in Bitcoin terms, and they're thinking about, you know, organic assets that they're getting ready to stand up against the opportunity cost of just holding Bitcoin. When you can find companies that think like that and have leaders that think like that within their organization, all of a sudden owning that equity becomes really appetized for, for Bitcoiners, especially as this price goes to places that I, I don't think the market can even begin to comprehend but yeah anyway agreed there what do you okay i guess we can we can go a couple of different directions here but maybe a, a starter would be how do you think about kind of the you know operation choke point that seems to be happening you know it's it's broadly like kind of a crypto crackdown in terms of the regulatory front yeah but the real the real elephant in the room is the dollar rails off ramps on ramps stable coins yeah, kind of a stable coin battle going on too. Not sure how how close you've been following it all, but what are your kind of general thoughts? So first and foremost, I would say for a person who's who's seeing all this, for a Westerner or like a G seven country type person that's seeing all this, it might scare the bejesus out of them. And what I would tell them is, uh, the real movement in this in Bitcoin is going to be from non-G7 countries. Like that's going to be, those are the citizens of the world that are going to bring Bitcoin to the forefront and make it a global settlement layer, okay? So that needs to be understood first and foremost. When I look at some of the stuff that's happening over in Africa right now, it is beyond exciting. 
And when you look at what they're dealing with, with their local currencies for most countries and most citizens around the world, and I'm talking billions of people, they're dealing with 50% plus inflation and they're dealing with not being banked, but they're all running around with smartphones. So like, that's what's going to make Bitcoin successful in the long run. When I look at the G7 countries and particularly here in the U.S. and I see uh, what's the name of the operation again that you that you referenced, Dylan? Operation Choke Point. The choke point. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. yeah, Nick's article. So what I would what I would describe this is is I think Wall Street got caught with their pants down in the last bull cycle, and I think it's a major play for Wall Street bankers to try to get control of the dollar rails, stable coins in particular. And they want in on that action. And so like, if you're them and you're behind the eight ball and you got these weirdos like Brian Armstrong running around running billion dollar companies, you know, it's kind of like, well, this guy's, this guy's the amateur at the table. So how do we take him out? Well, I think you take him out with your, you know, your super aggressive, over the top, better lobbying efforts than any, than any other industry on the planet mechanism. And I think that that's what they're doing. I think they're taking them out one by one. There's no better way for people to pop out control of their equity than to serve them up with some type of legal, not a, it's not a settlement, but just like some type of legal document that says they owe a hundred million or a billion dollars, right? And of course they can't pay it. And then, oh, here's the JP Morgans of the world ready to buy up that equity and rescue them. And they'll make the $500 million payment, the legal payment that they need to, that they need to service. And to do that, you know, they want, they want a controlling share of the equity and pop it like, like a fumble in football, the ball pops out. And then the, the, the Brian Armstrongs aren't in charge anymore. I think that's what's I think that's what's happening. When I look at stable coins in general, I think that they're going to represent the buyer of last resort for all these treasuries that that are going to sell off, that you know are just going to perpetually sell off. They got to go somewhere. the The U.S. needs some type of buyer. So what better situation than to have private industry, Wall Street banks, own these stable coins, and and that that resolves their problem. So like I see all of it revolving around the stable coins and i think all the all the shit coins are just just a really easy like decapitation like bullet to the forehead for for ginsler and all these wall street you know banks that are lobbying for like on behalf of what's happening on the governmental level so yeah that's some of my that's thoughts on it i think that's exactly what's happening as well it's a great way to to kind of describe it i mean the business model of a stablecoin issuer is quite lucrative with, with short rates at 5%. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and Tether, like, I mean, Tether's what, 70 billion, you know, they just published today. They called it, I forget what they called it, a report reserves a report or something, but they said 81% of their portfolio is not short end. They didn't really say what the 19% was, right? Like they're still not, you know, for, for what they are, they're, you know, transparent, but not enough to really, you know, feel safe well, there. It, uh, it's not only good for them, which I completely agree with you, Dylan. It's also good for the U.S. government, right? Like they can't be issuing this debt and then turning around and buying it themselves because, you know, like like everybody and their kid sister is going to quickly realize that that is a total scheme and, and a lie. But 
if they're issuing all this debt and there's these privatized like bank buyers of it and people don't even have to understand what's happening it's just it it re the the fiction novel reads a lot differently i guess so i think it's i think it's a win-win relationship for the government entities issuing all the debt that that they're blowing up and i think it also works out for the banks to grasp it you know their their dying breaths by buying up all these all these treasuries to back the the stable coin tokens that they're going to be issuing and and i think that they're on a mission to decapitate the the uh, the crypto boys that are running all these exchanges well articulated I guess if we backtrack a bit, this is a little bit more macro, but we got the CBO coming out with, and you know, this is just their, their own best guess. That's probably going to be hilariously wrong, but the budget estimates came out for the next decade and it said, you know, 2023, 2033, we're still going to, debt to GDP is going to be 118% or 116%. It was right around there and peaked at like 120% or 125% during COVID, you know, federal public debt to GDP like what does the next decade look like is it still the fi- it has to be the financial repression playbook right like inflation is just going to average on a you know 10 year time horizon uh a little bit hotter than the the interest rates on the sh- on the short end is that still the game how does like how how do you think of that you know lynn recently wrote a really good article on this idea and i think she came up with like a reasonable like outline of, of what the, I, I think it's behind a paywall though. I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's available for consumption out to the public. People can look on our website and see if it's there or not. I, I don't know if it's available to the public, but she described it kind of similarly the way that you did. I don't know if you read it Dylan or not, but I would say that for me, that's the conservative like timetable is like, you're dealing with a deck, a decade of them, like, slowly just debasing and keeping things under control and all that. And I think if I was going to say on the more aggressive front is that you start getting yourself into a debt spiral and, and maybe things move a whole lot faster than what anybody can even comprehend, which could happen in three to five years. So you're, you're somewhere in there. And I think that the thing that makes it really hard too is, is on a, country like when you look at the g7 countries and you look at what they're what they're dealing with from their credit markets and then you look at the face of like what inflation they're dealing with it might look like we have the ability to contain this here in the u.s because it's not nearly as bad as some other parts but i think we're so interconnected with these other like major economies japan europe the war over there is only you know, highlighting the the breakdown in supply chains and just energy in general. And I think that we might we might really grossly underestimate how bad things actually are on that front of, of their ability to actually contain prices. You know, just by looking at the 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 posts of some of these leaders and like just how demented and and how lack of critical thinking there is at very high levels like i have very little faith that that people can actually control what's about to happen here with within the g7 and and i think a lot of the net producers in the world which are which are non-g7 countries i think they totally get it 
<laughs> and I think I think they they understand that these G7 countries have just totally totally taken advantage of the of the fact that they can just print these digital units and exchange them for actual raw materials with proof of work behind every element that's been mined and manufactured and and like they're sick of it they're so done and and it's not that I'm like for one side or the other I'm just trying to describe it from the various points of view I think they're just looking at this and they're just saying oh they they are so toast so um you know, and, and I think in the backdrop of all of that, like I was describing earlier, is you're going to have like these these emerging economies that are going to start using Bitcoin. And it's just going to be so become so obvious to their citizens that like this is something to be used. This is something to save in. This is something that's dependable. This is something that immediately settles. This is like all of those things. And I think that it's going to be really hard to stop that reality from spreading around the world, especially when you got things like the Nostra protocol that completely enable free and open speech that nobody can shut down. I just don't know how you can keep the lid on things like this. Like with Twitter and these these large social platforms, like I, I, this is another thing. I don't think people realize how manipulative these platforms have been. I think the COVID stuff and, and others are just a, a dab of reality that just made it really obvious what was the psychological piece that was being played. So, you know, I, I can only imagine where we're going to be in three to five years with free and open speech and free and open money, sound money, saleable money. My fellow plebs come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts, Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. That was an awesome rip. Chris, Craig, I don't know if you guys have any any questions on the top of your mind that you wanted to, to ask Preston. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess that ties in pretty well with what you're saying, like the G7 nations making things more difficult. I guess this kind of ties into basically what the EU is doing, Preston. I don't know if you saw, they announced it probably a few days ago that they're basically trying to push in kind of their own operation choke point in the sense of they're basically telling banks that if they want to deal with Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies at large, that there's, you're going to have to put caps for you know individual customers for purchasing it. And basically kind of ties in with like what Christine Lagarde said of like, you know, it's either, you know, if there's an exit hatch, they're going to take advantage of it. The ruling looks like it's they're trying to get it in for January of 2025. So two years from now. But the way that it was worded was basically like, hey, if you want to be in this system, you better start complying now. Almost kind of like it's not passed, but like, you know, obey with what we're going to push through other or else. And they didn't kind of define the or else, but I guess they would make things more difficult. I guess what are your thoughts on that? I think that anything that they do to block the rails specifically to Bitcoin 
And anything that they try to do to to limit the amount that a person can buy is just going to be screaming to the market where the actual signal is at. And and they are definitely going to try everything. <laughs> People need to be prepared for them to try everything and aggressively try everything. And. So, you know, if people have massive position sizes and that, and that makes them uncomfortable, well, then, I, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I think that needs to be your base case is they're going to try everything they possibly can to prevent people. G7 countries are going to do everything they can to try to stop people from, from piling into this, especially when it starts to run. Like, like if people haven't been in a, in a bull run, like I would say this last bull run was nothing like the 2017 bull run. That, that was a real bull run. And I think what potentially waits on the horizon is, is a 2017 and maybe even bigger type event in the next cycle. That's going to try to play out depending on how many roadblocks, a lot of these big nation States with their banks can, can try to implement. But in the background, again, in the background, you're going to have, emerging economies that have been absolutely victimized by dollar and euro and yen dominance that are just going to keep using this thing. And they're, they have no incentive to try to block. Well, I don't want to say no incentive, but I, I would say much less incentive. They have an incentive to get off of those rails and to stop having the IMF and the World Bank come in and just totally obliterate their nation states, right? Through dollar dominance and, and dollar indebtedness. So I think that that's the thing that somebody's got to keep in the back of their mind as they see all these tactics being rolled out. That one, one thing that I would... Well, I don't know that I'd necessarily... It, it goes back to the big banks really kind of coming into the fold and wanting to own the stablecoin market. There's just going to be so much demand for the transactions. So I don't know, you know, look at Fidelity. Like Fidelity is is very pro-Bitcoin. I just don't know. I don't know if, if they're going to be able to sustain that or not or or what that might look like for some other big banks. But I would I would point to Fidelity being kind of like one of the one-off cases that that and Ginsler too. He's he's been very open about what Bitcoin is. It's a commodity as far as they're concerned. And that I haven't seen anything with all of this Operation Choke Point to suggest that any of that is being has been reversed or that it's about to be reversed or limited. And but that's here in the US. I think over in the UK and I think over in Europe it might be a different story. Preston, how you, if we're just looking at like Bitcoin native stuff, right? I think one of the most interesting things post 2021 bubble was that you still had a major portion, a majority portion of the Bitcoin supply that was like relatively inelastic. They just didn't care and they still don't care. And, and the most interesting thing is like that cohort of people just, just got a, like a whole lot more of it. Yes, there was capitulation by certain parties, but you know, it was swallowed up there, you know, there was probably the biggest absolute, in, in dollar terms, it was the biggest absolute forced liquidation event Bitcoin has ever seen. Certainly could like the liquidity profile in legacy markets or volatility kind of have a spaz attack in the next 12, 18 months. I honestly, I, I expect something like that to occur, but it's it's quite interesting to think about, you know, just how much capital from, you know, those emerging markets. Yeah, from, from Western speculators as well. And Western, you know, short-term, intermediate-term investors, as well as long-term investors, but to to reach a you know one trillion dollar market cap, a five trillion dollar market cap, 
it's so inelastic at this point that it doesn't actually take that much, that, that amount of inflows, right? Like it's probably only a hundred billion or a couple hundred billion and, and we're at a, you know, $3 trillion market cap. And so I think that's, you know, if you just, when you look at all the things happening under the surface, the Noster stuff, the lightning stuff, hell, I mean, I, I don't, I think it's fascinating. The ordinal stuff, the inscription stuff, it's getting the, a lot of the crypto people excited. And I, I think it's cool. And I think it's a, in a, a new form of demand for block space and that, you know, it, it's, it's just part of the code, but that's, you know, that's got people excited as well. So it's just, I'm just, you know, quite interested, especially like when this credit cycle thing, if it plays out or not, but, you know, once we get to a, a point where if it does get bad, we do get this round of stimulus or even if we just get another year of kind of a really nominally hot economy where they're not completely tightening the belt with interest rates, it, it would be really fascinating to see Bitcoin, you know, how much it could move and how quickly. And I, I agree with you. I think it's going to blow, blow a lot of people away. Yeah. So I would, I had a friend I was talking with on the phone this morning and he said, what was, why did it jump the way it did yesterday? And I said, dude, there's been so much seller suffocation over the past year that you get to a point where like all these coins are getting consolidated into like really strong hands. And, you know, if, if a person's not intimately familiar with markets, like they just don't really understand the, 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 the excess sellers versus the excess buyers and how like after a certain amount of time, like that, that fizzles out and you get suffocated out of the market. And I would, I would say all the sellers that were in the market really from the middle of, well, probably like November of 21 till now, you've just had intense selling pressure, like straight selling pressure for more than a year. And they're gone. Like they ran out of coins to sell. And once those coins get totally consolidated into crazy zealots like myself, you and many others, like we're not putting them back on the market. They're not, they, they don't have any more to sell. And so you just have these buyers like, like a school of fish that are just slowly munching away at the little bit of available supply that's out there. And you get these. And then as you, you talk about all the time, Dylan, with some of your charts, then you get these people that are still levered thinking that the, the bear market's here to stay and you get these explosive moves like you saw yesterday. And I, and I mean, that's not even a hardcore explosive move. It's just I think that's where you're at. Like the, you're going to start to see these bumps. It doesn't mean that the bear market's over, but it's it's kind of looking like it is. And yeah, I mean, that's that's what that's what leads to the next leg up. And with with all of that, with these cycles, you get people who have dug in and then they really start to understand what it is that they own. So in reference to your ordinal comment, so like it's totally laughable to me that I would ever value a SAT that, and I know that the Genesis block is still in state, but like if I had a, a SAT from 2010, right? And I would, I would personally value that or somebody else would personally value that as being more valuable than a SAT that was mined in, in 2020, right? Like that is so idiotic because this is how I'm looking at the world, right? Let's say five or 10 years from now, equity is priced at a PE of five or seven, right? And it's a Bitcoin, it, the, the person running the company is stacking or they're, they're thinking in terms like a Michael Saylor where like 
they're looking at opportunity cost between investing in new assets versus stacking Bitcoin on their balance sheet. They've got, you know, margins of 20 percent or whatever. I'm looking at that company and I'm saying and, and, it, and it's a P.E. of five or seven or whatever. I will happily give up a sat from 2010 to own that equity because that equity is going to actually give me returns. Right. As opposed to this premium being constructed on sats that were mined sooner rather than later. Like that is the mind of a speculator. That is the that is a fiat mind of somebody who's so desperate to try to generate some type. return through speculation that's driving everything we're seeing right now from monkey pictures to ordinals and all this other stuff like it's just so laughable to me and it's somebody who who doesn't actually know how to perform economic calculation they're a professional gambler and unfortunately i think with a lot of this stuff we have an enormous amount of professional gamblers that are just total speculators they don't even understand what economic calculation is, and they couldn't find a business that that has a competitive moat that, that's fairly priced if it hit them over the side of a head. Professional gamblers, I like it. I I tend to agree. You know, I I, I don't hate well, it. It's like anyone doing their own thing, but it's like you know that's my, that's fine. So my frustration with the whole ordinal like JPEGs on layer one is that it's making it's making layer two more expensive to open and close channels, right? When I look at like how incredibly useful Bitcoin is in, in emerging markets for people to exchange and settle immediately, like we want that to be as affordable as possible. Like having some type of notary service, because that's what I, you know, if, if we're going to talk about like the ability to mint data or like a jpeg or some type of digital file on the layer one sure that's neat but it's not solving a really massive like unprecedented problem that the world has faced forever which is Sound, saleable money with scarce fixed units. It's never existed ever, right? Like the fact that we have like this unbelievable notary service that, that the only way you can prove it is by actually knowing the key to, to unencrypt something that was published into a global ledger. That's great. But last time I checked, like if I went to a court and said, you know, I have this, this notarized document that says I'm the rightful owner of this piece of artwork, I've never really had an issue with the court upholding the notary, right? Like it's not, 
we're solving problems that that are just so superficial to the other problem that's being solved, which is sound, saleable, immutable money. So that's where I get a little bit frustrated, and 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 the the cost that that that's popping out of that on layer two, or that could potentially pop out of it on layer two, is is where I'm a little frustrated with it. I just think that they're just a little they're very nearsighted and they're not seeing the bigger picture. That's all. Yeah. I, I think it's, you know, it, it's the interesting thing is that, you know, it's a free market and you know, if, if there is this massive problem that's being solved, which there is, it's, uh, then it's a free market. Yeah. I, I totally agree. It's a, it's obviously a free market, but it's also a free market of ideas in that we can talk as a community. And if we think that it's somewhat worthless for like what's being like, what's actually being done we can design around it and as long as we can get you know if people are making sound arguments and they can get 70 80 90 percent of the community around the idea to update the code base and i'm not saying do away with it i'm just saying maybe there's a smarter way that we can do this so that like one jpeg doesn't take up an entire block right like i think there's ways to do this in a much smarter and intelligent way and i think that free and open market of ideas needs to be discussed. The engineers need to propose something. I know NVK and I heard Adam Back has some pretty interesting ideas on like how to modify the existing code base so that a lot of these things can still be done, but not in a way that you're just chewing up the amount of block space that's there for the underlying transactions that need to take place. And I think you're also dealing with a time where an enormous amount of block space isn't being used. And so it's, you know, that's where you're having some of this come in here. And I think it's all healthy. Like don't, don't suggest, or please don't take away that. I don't think what's happening. I think it's going to lead to a healthy outcome. And, and I, I'm really excited that you're having conversations and debate around the idea to be quite honest with you. Yeah. I think the miners, the interesting thing is the miners really like it, obviously, because, you know, there's, there's at least, at the current moment where there was kind of a, a pretty dead mempool, it, it, you know, the mining, mining revenues is, was basically, and still, you know, really is basically just the block subsidy, right? So block reward plus block subsidy plus the fees is the block reward. And, and you know, as we go to the next having 24, next having 28, that block subsidy gets pretty small. And I think that regardless of these, you know, JPEGs and the blockchain, there's, you know, the, my base case has always been that there's going to be a reliable fee market to be built, whether that's because, you know, difficulty, you know, or the mempool uh, clogs up because the mining isn't profitable at, at some point And, you know, eventually a, a equilibrium is reached or it's like, you know, we start to see, and this is just part of the picture, obviously, but we see, you know, these JPEGs or, you know, NFT games being played that are just sweeping the floor from like one sat per byte to 10 sat per byte block space. And you just simply as a Bitcoiner, you know, whether you're opening a channel or, consolidating UTXOs, like you have to just pay up for miners to not, you know, kick you to the curb for people that want to yeah. splatter, you know, well, four megabyte blocks. And this is why I think Pierre's to me, when I talk to him on this particular topic, is just like, you know, nothing needs to be done quickly. Like we need to sit back, kind of see how it plays out, see what the actual impact is. I'm going to be really curious when we get into a, you know, maybe a pretty volatile market price, like, what the what the fees go to on the block space to to get transactions written in a in an expedited manner i think that's going to be yet to be seen right so there's no rush let's see what happens let's 
let's intelligently talk about how the block space could be optimized and still accomplish some of the things that people are wanting to do. And let's not do anything hasty, right? Like that's, that's really important to not do something hasty. I just want to apologize to Kenny. Kenny, thank you for the DM. And I'm sorry, I did, I totally failed on the follow through back. I think it was in November, but good to see you there. Love it. Chris, Craig, you guys got any, anything else? Yeah, I have a question. So we've seen, we've seen a Bitcoin native capitulation. And at this point, we're hovering in the 24 range. And so I'm, I'm wondering, like, Preston, how much do you think the, the macro picture, which is pretty bearish overall, and the rising interest rates and higher for longer, how do you think that's going to affect the Bitcoin price, which pretty much behaves like a risk asset? Well, we've seen we've seen Bitcoin over the last couple of years kind of lead the the broader economy in whatever those moves, those trend changes are. I would like to think that we're going to continue to see that. I've heard Michael describe Bitcoin as as the highest frequency money out there, and so we should expect it to kind of demonstrate what what the what the momentum shifts would be first. So it wouldn't surprise me if we saw Bitcoin kind of put in a bottom a quarter or two quarters before the rest of the of the overall markets it, it my you know from a momentum standpoint and this took me a really hard time to wrap my head around being disciplined to look at it this way but momentum is just all about one metric and it's price and you have to forget about everything else you can't say well because this other thing's happening like if you're truly using like moving averages or an ATR for a momentum, you just have to look at the price and you have to basically blindly follow what that is. And if you're like me, I try to optimize around movements that are in excess of a year because I hate short-term capital gains. You know, right now, the only thing I'm finding that's actually, well, not the only thing, but as we're talking about Bitcoin, Bitcoin has transitioned into a green momentum status from the, the the length of time that I like to optimize for. When I look at the NASDAQ and I look at the S&P 500, it's getting very close to turning into a green momentum status, but it's, it is still red. And, and again, it's really important to emphasize, like, if you have a different time horizon, you can come up with a green or red status for pretty much anything you want. But for the way I do momentum and the, my long-term outlook, that's how I would characterize both of those. But they look like they're very close to turning turning the page, which, you know, so then it, then you can kind of say, well, what would be causing that? You know, Luke Roman really thinks that when back in, I think it was November, when Yellen basically started to allow the dollar to to go down relative to all the other fiat currencies, he's he's kind of thinking that that might have been the transition point where they're they're trying to breathe new life back into the into the risk on and assets. But I think it's all yet to be seen what's actually playing out here. I I think they're I think they're in a very scary situation as as we've already discussed. So I'm not sure. I, I don't know if they're going to basically change their mind and do a 180. You know, next month. Well, I got to give you props because, you know, I, I, can't, I don't I can't say I remember the, the 2019 allocation, but, you know, the past couple cycles, at least with the buys, you know, in with in public, you've, you've, you've had some pretty, pretty awesome snipes. You know, we, we, we can see you're an ex-military guy for sure, because they've been they've been hammers right at the bottom. I will say this. There is a whole lot of luck in the last couple, you know, calls 
that I've had over the years. I, I, I try my best. And, and to be honest with you, if I, if I was going to be brutally honest with myself, when I was doing a lot of the buys, I was breaking some of my own rules, which I'm still pissed off about, even though it was a, it, it so far has been a, a really strong and good call. I, I let my emotions kind of drive the decision to kind of step in and buy when I did. And so it's interesting because I would, I would give myself an F for sticking to my own rules, but I would give myself probably an A minus for, you know, the, the trade so far. And, and if I had to say which one's more important, I would say the one that I got the F on is the one that's actually more important because over a 20 or 40 year period of time, not sticking to your rules is what's going to get you slaughtered. So, you know, based on some of the rules I've got, I probably should have maybe start, maybe done my buy around like the middle to beginning of, Jan- of January of 2023. And as people know, that's not when I did it. I actually did it sooner. So I, I don't know. I like to try to look at myself as objectively as possible. And that's how I'd grade myself. So, I mean, and yeah, I got to commend you. So for you as an value investor, right? Like for, you know, most people here are probably listening from a, I mean, most people know you because you, you host the Investors Podcast Network and you've, you know, you've, you've been all over the investment landscape conversation here on Twitter, but you're a value guy, right? You said you just, you barely purchased or, you know, you made a small allocation into one equity, which is MicroStrategy, a, a, a Bitcoin play with, with cash flow, which many people probably know. For you in this world over the next decade or maybe decades too long, but for, you know, for at least the time being, until said otherwise, it's a it's a dollar and a Bitcoin game for you. And that's basically it, correct? Or am I... Am I that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I see. And, and I'm not one to like to define things in binary terms. Like, I would tell you, that's a really dangerous way to look at the world. But I think that based on how, re, like, how far we are down the clown world path, it's kind of forced me into this, you know, it's the dollar, it's Bitcoin. And if I can find an equity that has a, a leader at the helm that actually has control to make decisions and thinks in terms of Bitcoin as far as their economic account and how they're making value-based decisions and looking at opportunity cost, which is Michael Saylor is the only person I found that can do that that has a publicly traded company, I, I can't buy equity, right? It's, it's, I, I just don't know how you can outperform it based on, based on all the things I've talked about through the years. Right. And even Mike, and like I said earlier, even micro strategy, I, I only became a buyer as of recently because the price got so compressed. It was like down to like 200 bucks a share. So like when it was higher and it was like at a PE of, I don't know, 30 times earnings. It was it was laughable to me, even though Michael was aggressively stacking Bitcoin, like it was priced at a yield that like was just it wasn't worth the risk. But when it was when it was recently priced where it was at, I was like, okay, well, buy a little bit of this. This makes a little bit of sense. Love it. Yeah, I, I kind of see the world in the same way. Just It's just a dollar and a Bitcoin game, essentially. I'm interested to see just how long, and this kind of goes back a little bit to our combo, like, I mean, you know, we can, you can now get 5% on short-term cash. That's a big change. And, and who knows how long that lasts. I'm interested to see whether we get that, you know, deflationary 
bust eventually or or we get you know where you know this inverted yield curve does it resolve with short end yields crashing or does it resolve with you know longer end yields ratcheting upwards because in a dollar in just a bitcoin dollar game which i don't think many people are playing at the moment i think it's it's that 60 40 risk parity thing despite having its worst year ever in in 2022 like it's definitely far from dead in in terms of the investment approach that most Westerners and most, you know, global passive investors use. Um, so, so you know, a, a tweak to that, at least with how fixed income is thought of in a maybe, a, you know, prolonged inflationary regime, I think that's like, aside from, you know, the Bitcoin price action and it's doing its own thing, I think that's probably the most exciting thing for me as an investor to look at over the next few years is, is how this, you know, cash, Bitcoin on off strategy, not even on off, but just like Bitcoin as a investable asset even though it got decimated and, you know, the industry collapsed in 22 versus how does risk parity do when it's no longer, it seems an anti-correlated game, right? It's a correlated game now until said otherwise with bonds and, and equities, yeah. at least, at least not the last two weeks, but bonds and equities kind of trading in tandem. If you're going to, if you're going to outperform Bitcoin over, you know, a four or five year period of time, which I think anything shorter than that, you're, like it's it's really hard to to have attribution to the underlying thing that you're you're saying is the performance. It's going to have to be some type of small cap equity or some type of startup that's going to to provide the outperformance. And I would suspect that that whatever that industry or whatever that startup would be, it's going to probably have to be in the Bitcoin space, which is one of the reasons why you know I'm I'm excited about the ego death stuff that Jeff Booth and Lynn and myself and and Nico and Andy and Pablo are doing because I think that this space is just going to change so much, especially over in developing economies. But yeah, I think for the, the challenge for these large cap companies is, is these multiples. Like how, how are you going to outperform something that is coming, that's trying to become global money when you look at where it's currently priced to where it would go to these, these market caps that you got in, in mid to large cap equity. I, I don't know how you could possibly outperform it. Yeah. It's, I mean, so far in the year, I think Bitcoin and even, even during 2022, right. Bitcoin had a pretty, pretty bad year, year to date for, for 2022, but risk adjusted, like I think bonds were, were like bonds had a lower sharp ratio than, than Bitcoin. I imagine at least, at least for like, you know, 10, 11 months. Same with equities. I don't have the numbers off the, off the top of my head, but you know, risk adjusted at performance is something that's notable. Bitcoin is still very, very liquid. I mean, it doesn't take even a billion dollars to move the tape, to move the exchange rate all that much nowadays. There's really only one platform out there doing massive, you know, or, or a lot of liquidity that's Binance and they have their own question marks, which we don't even need to go into, you know, like they got the Reuters published something today that was pretty interesting about the, the kind of the same shell game that FTX did. So so we'll see what happens there. Do you want to talk about ego death for the last three, five minutes? Or do you like, what, what do you want to touch on? No, yeah, we, we, we don't have to. I just, I just brought it up because we were really kind of talking about opportunity cost against Bitcoin and like what could potentially outperform is really just, you know, and it's a huge if you get into more of a statistics problem there based on your decision making that to, to try to outperform. But one of the things I, I did want to bring up was because I talked about this idea quite a bit, which is if we're looking at a, a these micro credit cycles that are being managed by the central banks where they're doing these these infusions and, and bringing it back out. And some people might 
disagree that like that's even what's happening. But whether you agree or, or disagree, it doesn't matter. The thing that I've been trying to tell people is you have to look at the price from a holistic cycle. So don't don't measure Bitcoin's performance from the bottom to the top and don't measure it from the top to the bottom. You have to measure it from a top to a top or a bottom to a bottom. Right. And when you look at it in those terms, relative to everything else out there that you could own, you get some really interesting results. So now. I have no idea whether or not the bottom actually occurred here on Bitcoin, call it in November or not. But let's just, for simplicity's sake, say that it did. So if I go back and I, and I stick to this rule of thumb, which is a bottom to a bottom, right? And I'm comparing Bitcoin to all these other things. And, and Yuri and Timmer just po posted a chart that kind of graphically demonstrates what I'm talking about right now. People can go into my feed or go into his feed and kind of look at, at it, but he's comparing it to all the things that you can own. And when you look at, if I go to the, the COVID bottom, to the bottom that we recently had with Bitcoin, and we're just assuming that that was a bottom to a bottom. Now, I don't know if it's going to go lower or not, but let's just say that that was the bottom of the bottom. Here's the performance difference between Bitcoin and all the other options that were out there if you held it through a full cycle. Bitcoin, 295%. Looks like commodities, is that commodities GNR? I think it is. It was 133%, 136%. Next after that was the Russell. It came in at 83%. Next was the NASDAQ at 71%. And then it just keeps going down from there with the worst performing being bonds at negative 35%. From, from cycle bottom to cycle bottom. And so when you have people from the outside that are looking at Bitcoin and they see all this intense volatility and they say, oh, it's down 60 percent. That's a person who is taking the top to the bottom. They're not analyzing a full cycle. They're an they're analyzing a half of a cycle or a quarter of a cycle. OK, and they're not they're not living in reality. And so I would highly encourage people when they're looking at their performance to always try to pick a top to a top or a bottom to a bottom in order to compare that relative to all other indexes and, and, and investing opportunities that they had to fully understand what the performance actually looks like. Well said. In, in regards to that, that jury and timber, sorry, I was chewing that jury and timber piece or a chart, I think it was Jan 1st performance to, to now. But yeah, I mean, it's, it, it shows the cycles, it shows the COVID blowout. And, and I think it, it'll continue to be one of the best risk-adjusted bets uh, yeah, I, of the decade. I, I don't like the, the, the time, the, the pinpoint that he has. I would, I would prefer to see the chart from the bottom of COVID to where we were back in November. And that, those were the percents that I was just reading to you was my own personal chart, which was from bottom to bottom. But his yeah, chart yeah. doesn't... Oh, okay, there you go. People can click on the, the chart there that, that Dylan just shared. It's very close to what I was talking about. I, I would say that, well, no, that, I, I think I covered it. I won't, I won't go on. Cool. Well, we've gone for 62 minutes. I mean, we first off, we really appreciate it. I, I don't know if, if Craig or Chris want to sneak in one more question or if you have time for one more, but I just want to say thanks because it's been a while since we caught up and it was, it was awesome exchanging ideas again. Yeah, man, I appreciate the invite and anytime, just let me know. I'm more than happy and I, I can hang around. I got another 
15, 20 minutes I can have. No questions on my end. Thanks, Preston, once again for showing up. Looking forward to seeing you in Miami. I'll kick it over to Craig if he's got anything. Thanks, Chris. All good on my end. I feel like that was a great place to end it, talking about the bottom to bottom of the cycle. And just again, thank you so much for coming. To all the people in the audience, both Preston and Dylan will be at Bitcoin 2023 in Miami. So make sure to get your tickets. You can use code BMPRO to get 10% off your tickets as well. So looking forward to having more of these conversations in Miami in a couple months. Thanks again, Preston. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks, guys. It was fun. See you in Miami. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.